As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show. Thank you very much for downloading and pressing play on this podcast. Both steps are essential. My name is Ryan Bailey and joining me today are two men who belong in pot one according to the UEFA coefficients of our hearts. Firstly, Taylor Rockwell, how are you? I am well, thank you. That's a very thoughtful and sweet introduction. Mine are usually like, Joe, figure it out, Ryan, figure it out. I appreciate the <laughs> kindness of that one. I even had my arms held aloft in the air in tribute to you as I said it, Taylor. That's I would hope I so. I would hope so. <laughs> and joining Taylor and I from Arizona, a state that ranks highly in both the Grand Canyon viewing coefficients and the insane GOP member coefficients, <laughs> Joe Lowry. <laughs> Joe, how are you? That's a tough one for me. I would like to say my arms are just straight at my side, not up in the air, not, not sort of medium. They're just straight down, and, and I just want you both to know that. Okay, well, you, your, your arm vertices coefficient is quite low then, I'd say. I'm into coefficients now, you can tell. <laughs> I, I, can, I, can I can tell. tell. Where, where, did that, where did that enthusiasm for coefficients come from, aside from today's topic? Oh, I just love numbers. You know me. Stats, <laughs> XG, I'm all about it. Oh boy. That makes two of the three of us. I am the, uh, the odd man out on that one. Oh, yeah, stats are wonderful. Anyway, today, gents, uh, we have a mission, that is to talk about the Champions League, which is making mm-hmm. its welcome return. The knockout rounds are returning in but a few days. That means one thing. Well, it means two things. We get to hear Mika Richards laugh in the CBS studio again. I'm very much looking forward <laughs> to that aspect of proceedings. It also means we're going to be re- previewing and reviewing the matches on this here Total Soccer Show. Today, we're looking at the games which are happening next Tuesday as we speak. RB Leipzig, which I like saying it like that, against Liverpool and Barcelona against PSG. Now, just looking at those two titles, gents... That's quite, they seem quite titanic, quite big. I'm excited that, I'm always excited when we get to the knockout stage because, well, let me ask you this. Uh, Joe, are you one of those guys who sort of looks a little bit down on the group stage and sort of gets more into it when we get to the knockout? Oh, I'm not picky. I, I think the Champions League group stage brings us some really good soccer, and that's only that's really only improved upon as we head into the knockout round. So while while these matchups, especially the ones that we're going to be talking about today, are really, really big games... I won't, I won't begrudge the group stage for being what it is, Ryan. Oh, 
Wonderful stuff. And how would you feel if we did, um, there's plans, is it 24, 25? They're talking about expanding the group stage. We're talking 10 group games is the, uh, is, is the positive plan. Are you out for more of it? 10 group games feels like a bit much, but uh, I mean, I'll let the decision makers make that call on that one. Fair enough. It's, it does provide more money. And you know that soccer teams like having more money, right? <laughs> That's very true. That is very, very, is very, very true. true. How about, how about you, Tay? What do you feel? Do you feel like it's a different, something different in the air when we get to this stage of the competition, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think with the group stage, I tend to be really excited that the Champions League has begun. So I'm like excited for the first two games, maybe, and then the last game or so, provided they're not all dead rubbers. But I am a bit more, I guess, cynical about the group stage. It feels like, ah, well, it'll end up being the, the best teams go through and the smaller teams don't, and some other teams go to the Europa League. But with the knockout round, even when it is uh, home and away, uh, I liked the, the single-leg fixture of the restart, but I yeah. think home and away does make it a little bit fun because you get different dynamics to different games and teams playing fundamentally one way and then fundamentally differently, like, two weeks later. And and those sort of wrinkles, that difference in approach can always be really, really interesting. Agreed, agreed. And we're going to talk about um, Leipzig-Liverpool very shortly. Before we do, though, gents, just more generally, what are your thoughts on the competition this year? You mentioned last year with the single elimination, Taylor, and that ma- making things a bit different. And we know this is a very different season. Joe, what have you made of the, of the standard of competition, perhaps compared to and in contrast to the standard of league competition that's been going concurrently? It's hard when there are so many games happening at the same time, right? So many different competitions, cup competitions domestically, league competitions domestically, Champions League on the continent. There's so many things going on, but maybe I'm I'm biased and looking at things through red, white, and blue tinted glasses to, again, steal your expression there, Taylor. But I think the, the Champions League group stage has been exciting for me so far because we've seen so many young, talented Americans doing really big things. I mean, I think about... Weston McKenney's goal in, in Barcelona that he had on the volley that he, he ran into the box and hit it with the, with his, I think it was his right foot as he's running into the box. We yeah. saw Tyler Adams. We saw Gio Reyna. We saw we had different players coming in and making an impact. And so I think the standard of soccer was good. I'll have an even closer eye on the standard in this upcoming round, in this round of 16. But man, I can't complain when Americans are doing great things overseas in the Champions League. Absolutely not. Taylor, feel the same way? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very excited uh, with the number of Americans we still get to talk about being involved in the Champions League. I also do think, Ryan, to like the initial part of your question, it has been a strange Champions League. Like We have uh, RB Salzburg finishing ahead of Lokomotiv Moscow. I don't know if I would have thought that. Inter Milan finishing bottom of their group. I yeah. definitely didn't see that coming. Marseille, now knowing what we know with Andre Villas-Boas leaving and the kind of drama there, maybe not surprising that they finished bottom, but still... A little bit of a surprise to me. And then Manchester United obviously failing to uh, make it out, even though they had it in their hands and then dashed everyone's hopes quite expertly. (laughs) I think it's been a more interesting group stage than we're used to. I do think part of that is because of the lack of a break and sort of just rolling right into the next season. And and some teams that tend to have more stability have continued that stability, looking in the direction of Bayern Munich and Man City. Uh, and then some teams that have had stability but maybe not depth are trying to figure s- some things out. And then we have teams that are just sort of in, in a bit of a turbulent situation heading into the knockout round. So it does feel like we're poised for a lot of wild results and wild performances, and now I'm sure I've guaranteed a bunch of nil-nil draws in the first <laughs> Oh, no, we want wild. Wild sounds good, but uh, we'll, yeah. give, we'll give Man United a break for that group stage performance because if there's one thing Man United deserve, Taylor, oh it's a break. We're too harsh on those guys, but they were in a group, uh, group H with uh, RB Leipzig and Paris Saint-Germain, whom we will be discussing mm-hmm. on this very show. Why don't we kick it off with uh, RB Leipzig against Liverpool, Nagelsmann against Klopp, the team that's kind of winning against the team that's kind of not. The big uh, headline uh, coming into this 
this one is um, that there's been a venue change here. This uh, German uh, German COVID rules have prohibited travel from most countries hit by new variants of COVID, which includes the UK. Hence, therefore, Leipzig versus Liverpool is going to take place in Budapest's Pushkash Arena. A uh, question here from atnatfan9, thank you very much for the question, who asks, this isn't so much a specific question about the matchups, but so far three of the eight first leg matchups are being moved to neutral venues due to COVID. Do we think we might end up seeing a neutral site Champions League knockout stage like we did last year? Let's, uh, let's, let's cast some doom over this uh, season. Joe, what do you think? It's a very good question. It seems like it, things are too late to move towards that for this round of 16, but there's no reason, in my mind at least, why we couldn't see a neutral venue or a couple of neutral venues in the quarterfinals and the semifinals or for the final, I think that would would not only potentially be be a wise decision, but it, it certainly seems feasible from a planning perspective and from a logistical perspective. I don't know, Taylor, where are you at on the, the neutral site thing? I mean, I think we have the final scheduled to be in Istanbul. Is that correct? Yes. The silence. The silence tells me I'm going to go with my instinct and say <laughs> okay. yes. So, is, I, yes. as far as I know, Turkey doesn't have any any like particularly strict rules in place about who can uh, enter, and I'm sure they wouldn't mind if we had a bunch of professional teams staying at Istanbul and playing in the various stadiums that they do have there. Or maybe they're all playing in one. I think to Joe's point, it is a bit like short term to try to figure that one out. We might end up getting that if we get more spikes and more countries uh, getting increasingly strict regulations. But for now, I think they'll probably keep it as they are. Well, they'll have to play in some neutral spots. Still not entirely sure how uh, Budapest became the the destination. Romania doesn't seem like a midpoint for a lot of these, but what do I know about geography? So. I, I think we'll just have to wait and see, and I won't mind if that ends up being the case. I also think it's a strange thing that, like, when you don't have fans allowed in the games, like, do you have home field advantage? Does it really even matter, aside from, I guess, travel and accommodation? I think for the most part, not having any fans in there is going to balance it out a little bit. Well, there's, there's something to be said about the integrity of the competition if one of the legs is not held in the, home, the respective home team's stadium. I mean, do you mm-hmm. think Leipzig, for example, are at a disadvantage because of this? Or is it, not, is it more of a level thing because there's no fans anyway? I think it's more level because of, of the lack of fans that are in stadiums all across the world right now for the most part. But I think an always underrated part of home field advantage, to use that very American term, is just the comfortable nature that players have with their environments. If I'm going and playing soccer, if I'm driving to a game here in Arizona, I know right where Phoenix Rising Stadium is. That's a bad example because they're actually building a new one right now. But like, I know where to go. I know exactly how to yeah. get there. I know how long it's going to take me. I know what it's like when I get there. If you're playing in Budapest, that is very, very different. And so, yes, I think it is slightly more even having games at a neutral venue for one team versus another team for, for one leg of this two-legged affair. But it's still not it's still not equal in terms of the two teams' ability and, and comfort with where they're playing these games. I think I think I might disagree a little bit, or at least push back on that somewhat. I am obviously not a professional athlete, and I have never had to go on the road for games. Wait, what? But yeah, I know. Bre- breaking news here. I, I apologize if I've led everyone uh, astray by. Constantly claiming to have been a professional athlete for many years. I did not play in the World Cup, sadly enough. But I, I do wonder, though, with some of these, if like, if you are, uh, like, we talked about this at the weekend review that, like, Marseille, when their, their, like, team facility was attacked, the players were there because they were preparing for a game and they were staying there overnight. It's what they do to get ready. 
And if you're an away team going to to a game, if you are just staying in a hotel and then getting on a bus and going to the game and like you're flying in, you're on the bus, you're at the hotel, you're on the bus again, you're going to the game. I do think I, I know what you mean, Joe, that like if you are traveling and having to kind of figure it out, it becomes more difficult. But I think for these teams who have lots and lots of people figuring out all the logistics, if you remove the, the crowd element and the hostile fans from it, it changes things for sure. But if you're not going to have that on either leg, I kind of feel like it doesn't matter as much. Maybe I'm completely wrong. Maybe that's ignorant. But I guess it to me feels like if you're not playing in front of fans and you have to go somewhere to play the game anyway and you're going to be in quarantine or in the, the concentration or whatever they call it, like then I think that that does sort of change things a little bit in my mind. Uh, I remember this, this makes me think of a Jonathan Wilson piece I read many years ago when he was talking about home and away advantage in, in European competition and how, say, back in the 70s or the 80s, when you're the away team, it was a huge disadvantage. Not only did you have like more arduous travel, but you know different kind of facilities and uh, a lot more a lot more logistical challenges around the game itself. Whereas now, where all stadiums are kind of quite generic and quite uh, you know high quality, travel's very luxurious for most of these players. It's that's less of a difference maker. The only difference maker really is the partisan crowd, which we don't have in this instance. So if you look at it from that perspective it's maybe not too much of a shift. You could argue that the home players, the Leipzig players, have got to travel further than they would, you know, maybe a short car journey or bus journey that they previously would have had. But it's a bit more level than it would have been if there were fans, I suppose, is the point I'm making. Taylor? Yeah, I think I would, I think I would agree with that. I mean, I, I think it is probably the case that if you have Leipzig having to to travel and change their schedule and figure things out and cram in a game like a week from now because they had to adjust the schedule and then you go back and it's Liverpool just playing at home. Like I, I guess that that is a compounding factor and does make things a little bit more complicated for Leipzig. I, I think just more so than ever, it, it is less important right now, home field advantage. And to some extent, haven't we learned that like, didn't we learn in the restart that teams that were playing at home tended to do worse because they didn't have the crowd noise and they were so used to it and they were used to that being a an amplifying factor? I'm sure that's been like less of a thing as it's gotten more common and people are more used to it. But I think all that to say, if we end up having to do a neutral venue, I think that's fine. And maybe we get into single legs and that is also fun. But if not, then we just get more games and uh, more random places to take in and enjoy. So why not? Random places. That's what we're all here for. And what we're all here for specifically on this podcast is a preview of Leipzig versus Liverpool and Barcelona versus PSG. We're going to get into the meat of this. We're going to break down everything about these two teams and these matchups. We've been flirting around this for long enough. We're going to flirt just a couple (laughs) seconds longer, though. Uh, Some very important, informative messages. And we're back right after this. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. All righty, gents. Leipzig against Liverpool. What I'm going to do is assign you each a team. Who's taking Leipzig? I got it. I want it, and not just because I prepped for it, but because I, I actually... No, it is just because I prepped for it, and I have not prepped for Liverpool. 
Oh, I, I thought you were going to say you prep for everything because you're the most prepared man in the world, Joe. Uh, let's uh, let's keep going now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's start with Leipzig then. Let's sort of uh, run the gambit on what they're all about. So tell me first how they got to this point, uh, Joe. I mean, uh, you know, their group and uh, they came out second in, uh, in, uh, in their group. T- tell me all about their journey to this point. So Leipzig finished second in Group A, in Group H, excuse me, as you mentioned earlier, Ryan. They finished with 12 points just behind PSG. They beat Istanbul, Istanbul Başakşehir Shahir twice. They lost to Manchester United once and beat them once. And, and then they split the series with PSG as well, beating them once and losing once as well. Looking at the Bundesliga, because they needed to have a, a high performance in the Bundesliga last year, they've carried over a lot of that into this year as well. Right now, Leipzig are second in the Bundesliga, seven points behind Bayern Munich. Not a gigantic title race going on in Germany right now. That also applies to the team that Taylor will be talking about in just a little bit. Hmm. But Leipzig, the last fact that I have kind of off the top is they've won four of their last five games in all competitions. So they are in pretty decent form. They haven't been flawless in the Bundesliga over the last couple of months, but they do seem to be in pretty good form right now. Now, one of those most recent games, I think the most recent one was their Schalke bye week, though, to be fair. They got three <laughs> games, so, um, let's, let's take that into account when we talk about form, right? Yeah, and I, that, that really makes oh me that really makes me think. I used to play fantasy football, and I know Ryan, you and Taylor have talked about fantasy sports on this show before. And and you know, you got all your players in the same bye week, and you're really in trouble. If Schalke is your bye week, you're going to be fine. You're going to be just fine. <laughs> so tell us, Joe, a little bit about their playing style as well. We know we've got Julian Nagelsmann in charge, who likes to press like certain other German managers. We might be talking. What what exactly <laughs> are they about on the field? So Leipzig typically set up in some variation of a three at the back shape. So they usually use three center backs, or at least they have in their last seven games. Sometimes it's a 3-4-3. Recently, it's been a lot of 3-5-2. So three center backs, three central midfielders in some shape or another, two wing backs, and then those two forwards. And at their core, they're a Red Bull team. So they do press. They have the second most pressures in the Bundesliga, in, in the attacking third, I should say. That's after Bayern Munich. And they have the third highest press success rate in the Bundesliga. What's that, Joe? What is that? What does that mean? Well, I'm going to explain. That, that, that stat, Taylor, for your <laughs> education and for everyone else's out there, if you're not familiar, because I had to look it up as well, that, that press success rate measures the percent of pressures when Leipzig win the ball within five seconds of applying defensive pressure. So, so if, if Leipzig are stepping high into the attacking third, as they do quite a bit, a successful pressure would them, would be them winning the ball after they've engaged that press within five seconds. So they're quick with their pressure. They do it high up the field. But I think, at least when I think of Red Bull teams, I get very much caught up all about the press. Only thinking about that because for a while it seemed like that really was their only defining trait. Julian Nagelsmann has changed that quite a bit over the last year or two that he's had in Leipzig. Now, like almost every other team in this Champions League round of 16, RB Leipzig like to pass. They press, yes, and they pass. They press and they pass. They do that a lot. They average 58.3% possession which is the fourth most in the Bundesliga and one of the highest totals of any team left in this whole competition. Love it. Joe, Joe with the, the uh, I'm going to assume, increased slash better possession stats, how much do you think that is a product of that formation change? Because in my mind, for the longest time, Leipzig were a 
four three three four two 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 four two three one. Like it was, it was a back four, and it does feel like this season has been more of a back three. We talked about those last seven games. Is that like a more recent sort of like wholesale change? Is that something that Nagelsmann has been like exper- experimenting with throughout? Because uh, I, I guess I'm just still sort of surprised to see them every time they're out in that back three, even if it is pretty commonplace these days. The more consistent three back formation, I think, is a result of how Nagelsmann wants to play. I don't think it's the other okay. way around. I think because he wants his team to pass the ball, he likes having those three center backs in the back who are often really, really capable of passing the ball around. They have Willy Orban and Diet Upamecano. Those are two of the best center backs in Europe. Upamecano specifically is just really, really good. I know he's been mentioned on TSS several times over the last couple weeks. He's a phenomenal player. And when you have distributors like that in the back, using a back three or at least getting into a three at the back shape in possession and in buildup can give those center backs really good angles to find midfielders, really good angles off to the right or to the left, or, or give up a Meccano chances to drive into midfield. That's a thing he loves to do is to dribble forward, draw a, an opposing defender, an opposing midfielder, whatever it is, in, and then just lay the ball off, leave the ball after he's created space for a teammate. So Taylor, to answer your question, I think the, the three at the back shape that we've seen more consistently from Leipzig is all about how Nagelsmann wants this team to be both a pressing team, but also a possession team. Now, okay, that makes sense. Joe, who, who are the key men here? When I think about the Leipzig players who give me the fizz, so to speak, it is Upamecano in the back. It's you know Tyler Adams we've got obviously out there. Angelino seems to be having a much more prominent role than I expected him to have with RB Leipzig. Um, and also, can you tell us about um, how they've dealt with life without Timo Werner as well? Yeah, life without Timo Werner has been really interesting to start with that second question. They've gone to a more rotational front line. Sometimes it's been Emil Forsberg playing as one of two forwards. Sometimes it's been uh, Josef Paulsen. Sometimes it's been other players on that roster. It has been a rotating cast of guys up top. And all of those players seem to lack the speed and the get-in-behindedness of Timo Werner. I'm going to I'm gonna coin that phrase right now. But... It still worked out for them. Christopher Nkunku is another guy that I wanted to mention kind of in this category. He's a pretty regular starter for them and can play as one of those front players or can drop deeper a little bit and play as an attacking midfielder. He's a guy I'm going to be watching for in this game against Liverpool if he gets on the field. Another another one player I want to mention because I've already spilled the beans on Upamecano and given you all my material on him. It's Angelino. You mentioned it, Ryan, but... He is their left left back or left-sided wing back most often, and he leads the team in expected assists, which is just stat jargon for being a good chance creator. So he creates good chances, and he's third in expected goals and tied for the team lead in goals with four. He started out really hot this season. He hasn't been as hot on the scoring front recently, but those numbers, I think, do still really get to the fact that he is a hugely important attacking player for Leipzig, even though he's playing on the left side of defense at times. Now, before we move on to talk about Liverpool, that was very comprehensive. Thank you very much, Joe. But one very important area we haven't touched on, Julian Nagelsmann's wardrobe for this game. <laughs> I'm thinking, um, like, you know, Jim Carrey in the mask, the yellow suit with the fedora. I think that's what he's going to go with. Any Taylor, any ideas? I, I, I'm 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 either hoping it's, like, very neutral because he's trying to be respectful of the enormity of the occasion – or I hope it is like I, I feel like he could pull off the Riddler costume from <laughs> like when Jim Carrey was Batman. That feels like a thing. I wouldn't be surprised if he comes out in like bright green question marks and maybe a mask. I don't know if he needs the mask. I guess he does need a mask, so it all works. There we go. All right. Yeah, I, I think he should go in the full Riddler costume. Are Done. we are we just saying Jim Carrey outfits because his previous ones have been a bit dumb and dumber? 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would be okay with that as well. I think he should go for that haircut. That wouldn't be that surprising to me either. <laughs> I'm just picturing him with his tongue stuck to a freezing pole now. Uh, I can't get that image out of my head. Why don't we... Uh, if, there were, if there were a manager who did do that, like, it, he does feel like the one I could most readily picture. I think it's just because he's still so young that maybe it just feels like a thing he would do to entertain the players. Whereas, yeah, Mourinho, I think, not being quite as goofy, Pep Guardiola would just punch the pole instead of putting, <laughs> putting his tongue up against I, it. I think we can both... We can all three of us see Sam Allardyce doing that if he sees, like, you know... <laughs> Gets the wine out of the freezer too quickly or something. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> There's I, a chance he's stuck to a pole right now, Sam, <laughs> as we record. All right, Liverpool then, Taylor. Tell us all about it. How did they get to this point? Finish top of Group D. Tell me more. I mean, you, you have you have said it all right there. They finished top of Group D, and it has been a uh, a chaotic time for Liverpool since then. They have handled their opponents in the Champions League thus far: uh, two wins against Ajax, uh, two wins against, or excuse me, a win and a draw against Michelin, a win over Atalanta. Then there was that one loss, but aside from that one, it's been pretty smooth sailing for them in terms of getting through the Champions League in the domestic league. Slightly less smooth sailing. Uh, would not have expected them to be in fourth place right now, which is where they are, trying to battle for those Champions League spots, which I do think is of fundamental importance, both in terms of the money coming in, but being able to recruit all of the many players that they will probably need to recruit at the end of this season. Because I did not realize until doing the research for this just sort of how old that squad had gotten. Uh, And I'm not saying this even necessarily in a negative way, because that can be a good thing. But just so many core parts of that team are 29 and 30 years old. We already know about some of the injuries, and we'll talk more about that. But there are, I think, more questions around this Liverpool team than there have been, like, maybe since Jurgen Klopp took over. That's about where I am with them. Now, that made me sad when I was looking up the other day how the front three are all, like, 29 or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. That was that was concerning because it's over the hill. That made me sad. Um, but but uh, t- tell us about the, the, yeah, the right. playing style at the moment as well, Taylor. We know, sure. um, and maybe a bit about the personnel. We know the centre-backs are a, a makeshift at the moment, but and we yeah. know vaguely what Jurgen Klopp does. But uh, get into it a little more for us. Sure. Yeah, sure. I, I will go to the center backs in a second. First, the basic shape, as we all know, is that four-three-three, very attacking in the ideal form, less attacking of late, and I think they've had a hard time finding consistency, finding some of the kind of fluidity of the attack we've come to expect from them. The rapidity of those counterattacks has been slowed down a bit, and I do think, I've said this on the weekend review shows a couple times, but I'll reiterate it here, I think a huge part of that is the lack of consistency with who's starting in that midfield three. It is usually Tiago. Sometimes it's Wijnaldum. Sometimes it's Milner. Ideally, it would be Jordan Henderson and Fabinho, but they have obviously been uh, forced into deputizing at center back. Here is the stat that I, I think really exemplifies what I'm talking about. I saw this on the Liverpool subreddit. When Jordan Henderson starts in midfield, they've played uh, 11 games. They've won seven, drawn four, lost none of them with, a, uh, I think, a goal difference of plus 17. When he doesn't start in midfield, they've played 12. Won four, drawn three, lost five with a negative two goal difference. So you see right there the importance of Jordan Henderson and the importance of having familiar parts to, I think, provide the connective tissue. And if you start having to move people around to fill in elsewhere, I think Jordan Henderson can do that job, but I think you then sacrifice players further forward. So I do think we might get... Maybe Henderson, maybe Fabinho, maybe both of them back in the midfield and we go with a little bit more experimentation uh, in the back line. At least that's what I would hope they do because I think that gives them a better shot if they go sort of all-out attack against Leipzig. Well, we do know they bought a couple centre-backs, Taylor. Is now the time for experimentation? 
I think so. I th- I, and I do think uh, if Liverpool fans are looking for like a slight silver lining, it's that with things being as they are, with Man City being so dominant, with Liverpool now in fourth spot, I think the pressure is off for them to be in the title race. Uh, we know Jurgen Klopp doesn't want that question anymore, pretty clearly. Uh, but I think with that sort of sorted for now, you don't have to have players playing as regularly. You don't have to start that front three every single game because you're trying to keep pace in the Champions League and also in the league. And with a bit more flexibility, I think you can rest, you can rotate some more, and you can try some things out. I won't be surprised if we see uh, Ozan Kabak, the player they signed on loan from Schalke. I think he probably starts this weekend. Maybe we see Ben Davies, who was signed from Preston in January. Maybe Nat Phillips gets a start. I think this is probably the time, at least this weekend against Leicester City, for them to try a few things, maybe not gamble fully because it's still Leicester. That's a top four competitor. But I think you do have to start trying some things out. I mean, if for no other reason than because why else did you sign these players other than to give you a break and let your midfielders go back to playing midfield where they can then make things happen and pull some strings? Yeah, that has to be the intention, doesn't it? They have to be introduced uh, I think so, sooner yeah. or later. You're quite right. Um, so you mentioned gambling there. If we had to give an over-under on mm-hmm. how many passes Allison will give directly to the RB Leipzig <laughs> front line. What, what are we giving there? So, uh, first of all, I like I, I I hope it's none for his sake, <laughs> for his mental awareness, I think, or mental health. I think like that will be a thing to pay attention to in those first like few minutes. If he does get the ball, how confident does he look? Because I think the the problem for him this past weekend, which we talked about on the weekend review, is a little bit of the quicksand thing of once you're starting to think and you're starting to doubt yourself and you're thinking, I hope I don't mess this up. Uh, it's it's like the mental picturing of if you say, I hope I don't mess up, you're saying I'm going to mess up right there. And so if he does make a mistake early on, I would be very worried if I were Jurgen Klopp. I, I think he'll be fine. Allison's a very good goalkeeper. That seems like a one-off, though if it does continue to go poorly, maybe that just makes Lothar Karius look that much better by comparison. And finally, Taylor... Who are going to be the key men in this particular matchup? I'm mm-hmm. thinking, I'm looking at the fullbacks here. I'm looking at Robertson yep. and, and Trent Alexander Arnold, and they're looking at what they're facing on the other side. It's maybe Tyler Adams on one side and Angelino on the other. Yeah, I, th- I think that is probably going to be the big battle. That's the one that I think is going to be most compelling of how both teams try to get their fullbacks involved while negating the threat that the opposition fullbacks present and especially not letting those opposition fullbacks get in behind. Because I think certainly with Angelino, to a lesser extent, Tyler Adams, Joe and I talked about that yesterday, but and then Tyler, uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson, all of them very attacking, very capable of creating. So how they are able to balance each other out, very interesting to me. And then how Liverpool just sort of handle if they do have to have Jordan Henderson play midfield or if they do have to have Fabinho back there. We've seen Thiago not look his best when he doesn't have players around him that I think like uh, really complement his skill sets. So he could be a key performer for Liverpool as well, mostly in who does he have around him and how is he able to combine with them and how are they then able to help facilitate some of those attacks that we know they're capable of with that front line that is incredibly capable. It is incredibly capable. That leads me to a listener question, Tate from Chris Mabby. It's M-A-B-E-E. So if I was Liam Gallagher, it would be maybe. <laughs> uh, Chris, thank you very much for your question. He asks, uh, what can Liverpool do to restart their attack? And it's interesting because if you think about it's, it's relatively unfamiliar confines. This game's going to be in, in Budapest and it's a, a slightly different to the week in, week out, relatively speaking. Maybe this is a good platform for a little mm-hmm. bit of a, a kickstart. 
I, I think I think it is. I think it's a great platform for the reason I mentioned previously that they have a little bit more of an opportunity to rotate and give some players a rest. I think also with the pressure being off, you're not as focused on multiple competitions. Certainly, you don't just want to fall away in the Premier League, but I think you can really focus in on the Champions League and like like for a bit of a non sequitur for a moment, that's a thing that I think Rafa Benitez was really good at when he was in charge of Liverpool, was prioritizing Champions League and prioritizing knockout football. And there is something to be said for if you are focused on winning the two games in front of you and not all the other stuff that goes on in a season, it puts you in a stronger position. I think that's a luxury Liverpool have slightly more than Leipzig. As Joe mentioned, it's not a neck-and-neck title race in the Bundesliga, but it's certainly closer there than I think it will be in England overall. So I think that pressure being off is part of it. Where I still struggle to see how they turn it around is the lack of depth across the board. I I put this tweet out uh, earlier about Minamino being loaned out to Southampton because at a time when it seems like they need more attacking rotation than ever to get rid of a player that has been consistently discussed as like when he kind of gets his footing and figures it out and once he rounds into form, he's going to be this next level player. To get rid of him, at least on loan, feels sort of at odds with what Liverpool are looking for right now. Uh, I had a few different people point out that because their squad was so full, they had to get rid of senior players in order to register the defenders I already mentioned. So I think there was an interest in, in moving on Divac Origi, but there wasn't much interest in anybody taking him, or at least not the way Liverpool wanted. So I think that's why Minamino has departed, but that leaves Oxley chamberlain to maybe make an impact, or Jadon Shakiri. Origi is still there. So I think it will take Liverpool giving, giving their front three a rest, getting the midfield sorted, and then having some of those rotational players start to find some form and start to kind of allow Liverpool's key starters not to play so much. Diogo Jota and Naby Keita also coming back from injury yeah. would not hurt either. That's big. And lest we forget that this competition is Divock Origi's competition, Taylor. <laughs> yes, it's, it's him versus uh, <laughs> Chupamotang. Those are the two most important goal scorers in the Champions League. We know this now, right? Oh, we know that's this. quite accurate and hilarious that it is accurate. <laughs> Joe, um, we mentioned the, uh, the the matchups there of the wide players. Is there anything else in, in particular we should look out for in this game and how you think the rhythms of this game are going to shake out? It's funny because, Taylor, you mentioned specifically the those fullbacks playing against Leipzig's wingbacks and how mm. that battle is going to go down. And I think that's going to be really important. I also think, though, that what happens in the middle, this sounds so dumb because, yeah, yeah, man, what happens on the wings and what happens in the middle? Those are typically some pretty important things slash the only important things that happen in a game. But I think because of the way Leipzig play, they try to stack numbers in the middle, not just with their three center backs, but with their central midfielders. Sometimes even they'll push Tyler Adams inside to add another midfielder. So at times they end up with four or even five central attacking players or central midfield players in those spaces. And so right now, with how unstable Liverpool's backline is, and as a result of that, their midfield as well, with how unstable Liverpool are down their spine right now, at least in the middle and in the back, I think there is an opportunity for Leipzig to overload those areas, have up Meccano, drive into midfield as well, and create another number in that space, pass the ball around and then get forward, and then maybe use Angelino out wide on the left as their attacking outlet to get up the side and, and provide some width on that side to eventually cut the ball back into the box. So it, it's just funny to me because I think my focus will be on the middle of the field and Taylor between the two of us and we're covered. 
Well, I think I think you're probably honestly more correct in terms of what could be the deciding factor in this game because I keep thinking of this as Leipzig and Nagelsmann looking at this matchup and thinking like how can we cause Liverpool problems? How can we create uncertainty and create overloads? And that's their primary concern right now. And for Liverpool, I feel like the concern is like how do we start at eleven players? <laughs> like that seems to be what their <laughs> yeah. their main focus on is like how do we get everybody into an ideal enough position? And so. This like it could be really interesting. Again, this is a hypothetical, or not even a hypothetical. Just it could be this that it could be Nagelsmann tries too many things and gets punished for being too experimental. But I also wouldn't be surprised if he does try some strange thing. If he goes for two, like sort of, for lack of a better phrasing, like false nines, and has them move around to see if he can pull out some of those inexperienced defenders, or does he really crowd that middle and try to overload and pull everybody narrow and then attack down the wings? I think you're right, Joe. I think we'll see him move pieces around, and I think the center of midfield could become critical. Because when Leipzig were able to get that win against Manchester United, it starts with them basically being blocked out of the middle. Man United sit too very high, like far forward. Bruno sits on Kevin Campbell, and it's hard for Leipzig to play out of the back. Once Sabitzer and other players start dropping in, and the forwards drop in, and you have like gaps for other players to run into, that's where Man United got confused. That's Man United, certainly. But with Liverpool, as we've talked about with some of the players kind of having to deputize, and that being the priority right now, I do think that there's an opportunity for Leipzig to cause more uncertainty for Liverpool than the other way around. Well, on that note, Taylor, if you look at Manchester United in the group stage, they scored seven goals against Leipzig. Must we? They must got, we? Well, they, we? They must. scored seven goals against this team. They got five 0 yeah. win over them. Is there is there anything? This might be a tricky question, but is there anything that Liverpool will take from that? If, if yeah, even I, just some comfort. Yeah, I mean, I think that having that front three and and that front three, if if they are maybe able to get a little bit of a rest and and feel like rejuvenated and ready to go, they have such chemistry and consistency and like like almost at this point, like a psychic understanding because they've played together so long that I'm sure Salah knows when uh, when Sané's making a run or Sané knows when Firmino's going to drop in and he can make that run. And I think that can cause a lot of problems for Leipzig. But I do think also... That if you have Salah and Mane, sit, let's say it's Klosterman, Upamakano, and Joe, who would you say is going to be the right center back for Leipzig most likely? Oh, that's a. I, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Give me two seconds. Let's let's go with let's go, let's say it's Mukiele, uh, just for sake of argument. If you sit those like those wide attackers between those two, you have Firmino sit on Kevin Campbell. It does necessitate, if Leipzig want to build out of the back, the wing backs dropping in, which then maybe allows Liverpool to step higher. It means maybe it's Sabitzer, maybe, maybe it's Dani Olmo in the middle. They have to drop deeper. I think that front line from Liverpool, if they're clicking and functioning as a unit, can create a lot of uncertainty. And if they play really quickly, that's how Man United were able to find their way through with quick passing through the middle and quick combinations and then taking their chances. I think there are definitely opportunities for Liverpool, for sure. But pinning uh, you're spot on. That's, it's easier said than done, right? This is true. This is true. <laughs> You're spot on, Taylor, Joe. with that right-sided center back. I want to add, Ryan, if you'll okay. permit me, I want to add one more thing that I'm watching for in this game, and then I'll flip it back to you, Permitted. of course, Mr. Bailey. Thank you. Thank you, Permitted. Judge. I appreciate that. <laughs> I think I think another major battle in this game, and, and Tyler, uh, Taylor, you were just kind of building towards that. Tyler Adams and Taylor Rockwell combining in my mind there. Um, with funny. how I'll, I'll take that. I think that's that's generous to both of you in different <laughs> ways. But I think with how <laughs> with how Liverpool press... There's space in behind, right? That's a big thing. When they had Virgil van Dijk, it yeah. was, oh, wow, Virgil van Dijk can cover up so much space in behind the back line. And that need is still there. And I'm not picking apart Liverpool here because I think that need is going to be there for both Liverpool and Leipzig. 
Both teams press. Both teams play a really high line. And so when you're watching one team build up versus another team's high pressure, watch how that space in behind the opposing back line is exploited. Watch if it's exploited. Because I think the team that best controls that space in behind their own defensive line is really going to boost their chances of winning this game. Taylor, any more on this game? Are you bold enough to give us a prediction? Just to your to your initial like one of your initial questions in this uh, episode, Ryan. Like this is sort of why I love previewing these sorts of games because I will say like I was excited about the knockout round, but like you know it's the knockout round. I don't really have a vested interest in any one of these teams. But the more we talk about it, the more we look at it, the more I just see like so many different compelling matchups. Like I think this game could be fascinating. I really think it could be three nil either way. I think it could be three two either way. I think it could be nil nil potentially. And I think it is going to be very very exciting. I think I give the advantage to Leipzig. I think a lot of it will depend on what Liverpool do in the back line. I think if it is Henderson and Fabinho back there, I think Leipzig find a way to get a goal in the first half. That would be my specific prediction. If we have midfielders starting at center back, I think Leipzig are up by a goal at halftime. Joe? I am not strong or perhaps foolish enough to make a prediction. I will make a specific prediction, though, and it's that I think Tyler Adams will get on the field and I think he will do... Two things that make me go, wow, that was pretty good, Tyler. And then that'll be it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not sure how I feel. I haven't looked into the stats to, to give a good enough prediction here either. But this feels this feels on the low-scoring side than the high-scoring, I would caution. Certainly in, in comparison to the other game we're about to talk about. Six goals yeah, in I think it's just... Yeah, there we go. I think it's just so... It is also confusing because Liverpool have been this juggernaut force for so long, and yet I think I'm correct in saying that since December they've taken nine of a possible 27 points in the league. So suddenly there is this vulnerability, and and to a certain extent there's an individuality that's balancing it out. And Leipzig, I would say the same, that some weeks they look like this unbeatable team that will finally challenge Bayern Munich, and then other times they lose 3-0 to a team they have no business losing to. Never to Schalke, but other teams sometimes. So (laughs) I just think it, it's it's a really interesting match. I refuse to say it's delicately poised. I will just say it's one I am definitely looking forward to watching. Thank you for avoiding that cliche very much, Taylor. I try. We appreciate that. That's uh, Leipzig versus Liverpool. It's going to be happening next Tuesday, 3 p.m. Eastern. Simultaneously, I don't know why they're simultaneous, but uh, Barcelona will be taking <laughs> on PSG. We'll be talking about that one right after these important commercial messages. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. And we are back. Barcelona are taking on Paris Saint-Germain. This one's got a bit of history, a bit of recent history to it in Champions League context. Oh, yeah? With, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if you heard. There was a big <laughs> turnaround that Barcelona staged in 2017. Uh, this game, this matchup has never been goalless uh, between these two sides. That was what I was able to uh, ascertain. Um, I, uh, Joe, are you Mesquite and TSS host and you'll be taking Barcelona for this one? <laughs> 
Oh, that's so well done. Yes, I will be taking Barcelona in this one, or Barcelona if you prefer. They got here. Well, I guess we'll start there. They got we, here we by, by finishing. Thank you for that, Taylor. They got here by finishing second in Group G with 15 points, just behind Juventus. They beat Ferenc Varos twice. They beat Dynamo Kiev twice, and they beat Juve once and lost to them once in the league right now. Or maybe I should preface this whole conversation by saying Barcelona just confused the the heck out of me right now. Under Ronald yep. Koeman, they're third in La Liga. They're eight points behind Atletico Madrid. We don't have a whole lot of a title race going on in Spain right now either. But Barcelona aren't in terrible form, at least in terms of recent results. They've won nine of their last ten games in all competitions. Those results, though, they have not always been pretty. They've had some comebacks. They've had some some games where they've given up too many goals or certainly more goals than they would have liked to have conceded. And then right now, Ryan, before I flip it back to you, they have lots of injured players. Sergio Roberto yeah. is injured again. Sergino Dest is still dealing with an injury to his right leg. Gerard Piquet is recovering from a knee injury. Ronald Araujo, center back, is out injured. Ansu Fati has been out for a while now. So this is a, a weakened squad, similar to Liverpool. Uh, unlike Leipzig, I think they're largely healthy in that, that match we just previewed a few minutes ago. But man, Barcelona are dealing with a lot of issues with their squad just related to injuries right now. Yeah, it's, it is a bit. They are a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get with Barcelona. I think this season, um, as you mentioned, there's sort of six runs, uh, six six wins on the spin. I think it is since that Super Cup loss to Athletic Bilbao, and they have beaten them uh, since uh, too. Um, talking about the injuries, I noticed that Messi came on as a sub against Batiste. I didn't watch this game. Is there anything up with him? I believe that's just squad rotation. I haven't read anything about Messi being injured or seen him injured. He came on in that game and looked like himself. And so I think for Barcelona fans, that is a good sign. He looked like his grumpy self. Wonderful <laughs> to hear. So uh, tell us about uh, the playing style a bit more, Joe. I mean, we know we kind of know the the, uh, the famous four three three benchmark that's been set up. So is it the four three three GIM? The four three three give it Messi? Is that is that what what defines Cumans Barcelona? It is still a lot of four three three, but it's also some four two three one, and it's also some other things. It's really fluid at the end of the day, and I think it kind of has to be. I think your team has to be fluid whenever you have. Lionel Messi playing on your team, and so it always is going to morph and shift and change. But Messi isn't the only factor behind that change. If the youngster Pedri is playing in the middle of the field, it's probably going to end up as a 4-2-3-1, with Pedri as that attacking midfielder in between a right winger and a left winger. But Pedri's also played on the left side, and so that's a that's a variation that we could see. And then if the midfield personnel goes one way, like if it's Busquets and, and Ricky Puj, note the pronunciation there, everyone, and Frankie de Jong in midfield, <laughs> it's probably going to be a 4-3-3 if Pjanic is in there, although I think he might be out with a little knock right now as well. Then it's also probably going to be a 4-3-3. But you can keep going and going and spinning around and around. And at the end of the day, the shape is going to change. It's going to be fluid. And I think I can get lost in that. Sometimes I think everybody can get lost in the formation. And so at, at the end of the day, I think it's more important for us to talk about what they do with and without the ball, regardless of how exactly they're lined up. So, so Barcelona like to keep the ball. They have not lost that no. from, from Pep to the, the manager in between Pep and now Ronald Koeman. So they average 64.2% possession in La Liga. That's been what they've been averaging so far this season, which is more than any other team in the league. They've attempted more than 1,500 passes, uh, 1,500 more passes, excuse me, than any other team in La Liga. And they create chances. They create better chances and more chances than any other team in the league. Defensively, though, they have not been nearly as solid this season. They don't really press. So when I talked about Leipzig, I talked about, yes, they possess the ball, but they also press. 
Barcelona possess, but don't really press a whole lot. They will sometimes, but they're not one of the top pressing teams in La Liga. And they also are just not one of the top defensive teams in La Liga. They usually play a, a 4-1-4-1 defensive block, but they've got a lot of holes in it. It's typically pretty pretty man-oriented, so you can pull players around. And they've given up a lot of chances this year in La Liga. So in this game against PSG, with which has some real attacking firepower, that could be a big problem for Barcelona. Now, you mentioned the, the press or the lack thereof, Joe. And what I've noticed watching Barcelona this season is I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm very much a tactical layman in, in compared to you two gentlemen, but they seem like there's not very much intensity and almost like they don't care that much, the players. It's like they're, they, they're just going quite slowly quite a lot of the time and, and they don't seem to have, it sounds really cliche, but like the intensity and the drive that you see in other top teams. Is that fair? Is there something, is there something more to it than just not pressing much? I've Joe, do you mind if I jump in? Oh, for a please second? do, please do, Taylor. Because uh, uh, Ryan, I've thought the same thing, and I've been, I've like watched Barcelona recently. I don't think we've talked about this in the show. I've watched Barcelona recently, like with that question in mind, and I think it is to the point about them wanting to retain possession, wanting to be kind of focused on moving the ball and frustrating the opponent. I think so many teams press and pre- play this like high line, high intensity system that it does make teams who don't look weird. And and if you're Barcelona and you're prioritizing moving the ball and saving your legs a little. bit, Bit. And yes, occasionally like pressing and playing on the counter, but not doing as much of that. I think there is a weird juxtaposition of then when the other team is flying all around. And like even Lionel Messi, we already know he isn't the most mobile player at times. It makes it stand out that much more. But I think that like removing what everybody else is doing and just looking at Barcelona, I think it then makes it look less strange and it looks more like, oh, no, they're kind of doing what they've always done. Maybe not quite as effectively and maybe with different personnel, but it's less jarring when you stop seeing it as like, why aren't they pressing? Because the answer is because that's not what they do. That's my take, though. So I wanted to jump in for a moment just to say that and then Joe can say the actual correct thing. (laughs) No, I think that's a really good observation, Taylor, with how Barcelona play relative to the rest of the elite teams in Europe or relative to a lot of the elite teams in Europe. They just are not as aggressive defensively. And by and large, that's fine, right? You can still be effective and break teams down with the ball when you're not pressing and and not using pressing as an offensive catalyst. And so that's why we still see Barcelona create so many good chances. They can do a lot of awesome stuff with the ball. And I think we're going to see that against PSG. The issue, though, I think with their defense, and I believe this gets to what you asked originally, Ryan, and what you were just going through, Taylor, I think one of Barcelona's problems is their rest defense. I'm going to explain that because that's a a term that I'm guessing not a lot of people have heard, but it is a term that in one language, one language or another coaches will throw around. So rest defense, imagine that, that Barcelona is attacking PSG. We'll just use the two teams in this game and they lose the ball. Ordinarily teams immediately jump into counter pressing and win the ball back. And Barcelona will try to do that. But you can't just hop into counterpressing. You can't just immediately say, okay, we lost the ball, and so now we know exactly what to do to get it back. You have to train that. You have to drill that. You have to know kind of where you want your players to be even before you counterpress. And that's what rest defense is. Rest defense is kind of like offensive defending. It's where you want to be standing in case your team loses the ball. Barcelona doesn't have rest defense. They are all over the place. They're so fluid in the attack that they lose the defensive structure even before they get on defense, if that makes sense. It's kind of confusing, but that concept of of defending even when you're in possession is so important to not getting blitzed on the counterattack like teams like Liverpool want to do to you, like teams even like PSG have the speed to do to you. 
if you're not active and you're defending even before you lose the ball, if your rest defense is non-existent like it is for Barcelona, that I think is where some of the laziness and where some of the the bad visual and bad optics come into play. Now, a question uh, from a listener. J.R. Morgan asks, uh, Joe, assuming Ronald Rojo is out, is Barca better with De Jong as a centre-back or as a central midfielder? Um, what, what are your thoughts on that one? I think we've been, I mentioned they're on a good winning streak at the moment, Barcelona, but they did on Wednesday uh, lose in the Kings Cup to Sevilla, and it was uh, Mingueza and Mtiti in the back with Busquets in the middle, um, central midfield, and De Jong on the right. What do you, what do you think? Uh, how, how's that setup going to be, do you think? Barcelona should be hoping and praying that they have two able-bodied center backs to play and not Frankie de Jong. Frankie de Jong against Real Betis came off the bench and played as a center back, and he was lost defensively. Offensively, he was super fun, and I love that, and I would prioritize that if I have no skin in the game, and I, I don't. So I would say, go all for it. Go, go Frankie de Jong, go play center back, but Ronald Koeman is not going to want that because de Jong just doesn't have defensive awareness and so I think Kuman really is going to be hoping that he has Longley and Umtiti ready, healthy, able to go a full 90 minutes. And I think he will. And at the end of the day, I think Barcelona are going to be just fine because of that. One more thing before we move on to PSG, Joe. Um, the front line, you mentioned a bit of fluidity that goes on there and uh, you know Messi being played in slightly different positions. What about Antoine Griezmann and how he's been used this season? Because that seems to be a little bit fluid as well. Very, very fluid. Griezmann's played on the left wing really, really wide. He's played on the right wing wide at times as well. He's played in between the lines as a guy you think would be playing as a number nine when you look at the lineup, but then Barcelona just don't end up playing with any sort of number nine at all and just leave that entire area vacated and Griezmann looks like a central midfielder. I have no idea how Kuman's going to set up his team in possession in this game against PSG next week. But I do think Griezmann will feature. It's just a real question of where on earth he's going to go. Interesting stuff. We shall see. It does seem to change week on week. So we will uh, be very interested to see how that one shakes out. And Taylor, Paris Saint-Germain. Tell us Mm -hmm. all about them. How did they get to uh, this point? They did quite well last year. Are they going to go further this year, I suppose, is the big question. I suppose we'll find out. Uh, I will tell you how they got here first. Uh, they topped Group H. We've talked about this already. Uh, 12 points with a plus 7 goal difference ahead of Leipzig, who had 12 points, but a worse goal difference. And then some other teams that we don't need to talk about. Uh, they did not start off on like the strongest footing. They had, I think, three points from their first three games, lost at home to Man United, lost on the road to Leipzig, then turned it around with three straight wins, including a 3-1 to win away to Man United. That is a big part of how they were able to top the group. The confusing thing there was that all of those games were with Thomas Tuchel was in charge, and he is no longer there. So that does change some things a little bit. Ah, c'est vrai. So we have a new manager, of course, in mm-hmm. uh, Mauricio Pochettino. Um, we, we covered Le, Classe, Le Classique uh, mm-hmm. in, the, in the weekend review this week, Taylor, and we sort of posited that it's not too different under Pochettino at the moment. Uh, mm-hmm. And if it's not too different, what, what are we uh, going to be expecting from, from the playing style? Sure. I, I think... It's it's confusing to me because I watching that game against Marseille felt like oh he's got this figured out they're they're gonna be right back to it and much has been made of like oh they're third in in Ligue 1 and they're not having a very good season I think they're three points off the top yeah Lille have fifty four points uh, plus twenty seven goal difference Lyon fifty two plus thirty PSG fifty one plus forty one so they're still scoring goals I feel like they're gonna be in that conversation for the title if not uh, running away with it by the end of the season. 
But I, what has been different is some of the personnel that have been utilized and then how Pochettino is using certain people. For example, Idrissa Ganagay was, by all accounts, surplus to requirement, was being uh, offered on loan to different clubs. I think he rejected a loan to Newcastle, which is why he's not there. There were conversations with West Ham that fell through because I think PSG wanted Manuel Lanzini going the other way. And for whatever reason, West Ham said no to that. But now there's a chance that Gay may become a, a critical performer for Pochettino. And so that is where the new manager aspect of things is both a complicating thing and also an exciting thing because it does sort of give him a little bit of carte blanche to figure out what he wants to do. It's then strange because some of the coverage, like there's a Guardian article, not trying to put people on blast, but there's an article that kind of implies that he is struggling and he hasn't figured out the identity and he doesn't know what to do with this team and results haven't been very good. And it all made it. And I sort of thought I was taking crazy pills for a moment. I'm like, did it, maybe Marseille was a one off. And I looked it up. They've won six of eight since he took over. They've drawn one and lost one. The one they lost was a very PSG game in my mind. It was to Lorient. And it was the type of game where like they were leading and got penalties and had a bunch of shots but didn't really take them. And the winner for Lorient was PSG trying to get a winner, had everybody committed forward, such that I think they're player furthest back was still only about 40 yards from the opposition goal. So when the counterattack happens, it's a pretty easy chance for Lorient. I don't expect that to be the case against Barcelona. I'm assuming they're going to be a little bit tighter. And I do think Mauricio Pochettino is is going to, if not throw some wrinkles into this one, I think he's going to cause some problems for Barcelona. Well, talking about problems for Barcelona, one of their former mm-hmm. charges, Neymar, uh, yeah. likely involved in this one, uh, came on, I think he had a stomach bug, and he came on as a sub in that uh, classic game. Yeah. Did um, not start due to vomiting, is what I saw. Yeah. yeah. Which is a lovely way of, uh, of phrasing it, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Um, uh-huh. <laughs> it is. Now, I think he's expected to be involved in yeah. this one. I don't think it's Carnival or one of his sister's annual four birthdays um, <laughs> that's clashing with this one, so I think he should be playing. Um, yeah. The, the thing that sort of we heard when Poch came to this side, it was like, oh, good, good luck getting Neymar pressing. Do you think he, yeah. he's going to be okay in this in, in this Pochettino team? I mean, I'm not worried I, about him for the what it's worth. Yeah, no, I think he'll be fine. Uh, yes, to your point, like I don't think he is necessarily going to be pressing because I'm not sure that's what Pochettino is trying to do, at least not right away. But I think what Pochettino is trying to do is build the team such that like the attacking talents can sort of do what they want and everybody else has a bit more discipline. Uh, so... We know Pochettino likes to go with four at the back, and then historically it was either a 4-4-2, 4-2-3-1. It it tended to be what he liked, more so the 4-2-3-1 with Spurs. He started with some 4-4-2s with PSG, but then against Marseille, we saw him move to a 4-3-3. And I do sort of believe that that was with an eye towards this Champions League game, that I think he wants to get his team playing a system that does reflect what they're going to be coming up against in Barcelona's 4-3-3. And I think with three central midfielders, two center backs that we know are are, are very capable, uh, probably going to be Kimpembe uh, and Marquinhos. And then if you keep that midfield three, one of whom I think will be uh, Idrissa Ganagay, I think one will be uh, Paredes and the other will be Verratti if he's fit to go. It allows you, as we saw against Marseille, they stay a little bit deeper. You don't have as much consistency in the attack because you don't have Verratti getting forward and pulling strings, at least not as readily. But it means that you have numbers in the middle. You've got your defense back. You can sort of clog that and force your opponent out wide. And if that's Barcelona, I don't think that's necessarily where they want to be. But it also means that you can have Neymar and Kylian Mbappe, I think with Angel Di Maria injured, by the way. I should note that he is probably going to miss this game. I think Pochettino confirmed he would miss the first leg. 
leg. My guess would be that we have a Cardi start up top with Neymar and Mbappe on either side. And that basically allows them to stay higher. If anything, I think Icardi will drop in and do some defensive work. Those two will try to pin back the fullbacks for Barcelona, but also make those runs and sort of keep the Barcelona defense honest. And I think in that way, we're seeing Pochettino play with the squad, get different people in, but I think set his team up to win in the immediate future, while at the same time, I think planning for a longer term future, even if his contract is, I believe, only 18 months. Yeah. Yeah, which is probably about the amount of time it will take for him to instill his ideas and then he'll get fired, which is uh, probably how this thing is going <laughs> to yeah, shake out. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, uh, you yep. mentioned, uh, why don't we talk about the sort of the rhythm of this game, Taylor? Um, sure. A lot of attacking front, a uh, lot of attacking talent on this field. Um, we mentioned how Barcelona, uh, not necessarily a team who like to press high or have a, a super duper amount of energy. And then you've got Kylian Mbappe or players like him, who mm-hmm. I think actually made a sonic boom when he went for a run uh, <laughs> for the goal in Classique. Uh, so how are they going to deal with that kind of pace? And what, what else can Barcelona expect from this team in terms of the rhythm of their game? I mean, I, I, I will leave Joe to answer how they will deal with that pace, but it is, I'm going to guess, a, a big old concern for Ronald Koeman because <laughs> how you handle Kylian Mbappe is not an easy thing. Uh, I think the easiest way to do it is to not let him get the ball or not let him get the ball in dangerous situations. So if that is retaining possession to the maximum extent possible, I think that's part of it. If it is being cynical and, and fouling players when they're looking for that sort of transition long ball or transition direct ball in defeat uh, for Mbappe or in behind, maybe it's also just that you really put some wheels on him and try to limit his effectiveness and then you handle Neymar doing Neymar things. Like, I think they're going to have to really balance what they're doing so that they can make sure to limit Mbappe's effectiveness. I think that's going to be a big battle. I think a lot of it comes down to what Pochettino does in the middle because we've seen PSG go with a 4-4-2 that very quickly becomes a 4-2-4. And if they were to go that way, I think it's unlikely because Angel Di Maria is injured and because Pochettino, for whatever reason, has decided he does not like Moise Keane. Moise Keane started first two games under Pochettino, scored in both games, and then isn't really playing after that. So I think we won't see as many attacking options is my guess. But if we do see that midfield too, that then does, I think, create a lot of opportunities for Barcelona to stay on the ball, to pull PSG out of position, to make people drop back in and make people track back. And then they're not as able to transition effectively. So I think Barcelona keeping possession and slowing the game down and frustrating PSG will be part of their game plan. It's a lose-lose. Oh, sorry, Ryan. It's a, it's a lose-lose for Barcelona in this game. At least it seems that way to me, because if they keep the ball, that's great. That means Mbappe and Neymar don't have the ball. But all that means is that they leave themselves open to getting counterattacked, which is what Mbappe is True. best at doing. And so the margins are just so slim for Barcelona. If they have a lot of possession and they turn it over, they have to be active with their counterpressure. They have to be smart with set, where they set their line defensively. And then, you know, once they are playing back without the ball, because they're not going to have the ball for 100% of this game, then they really have to focus on, okay, how do we step to Mbappe and Neymar? Do we man-mark them a little bit? Because I think that's something they're not opposed to doing. But then how do we cover the space in behind? How do we make sure Icardi doesn't hurt us? How do we make sure Verratti doesn't hurt us? There's so many layers to this, and it's just hard for me to envision. I guess this is sort of a prediction. It's hard for me to envision Barcelona stopping PSG's attack for a whole host of reasons. Yeah. So, yeah, this game is at the new Camp. Obviously, no fans or anything, but it sounds like Koeman's going to be more anxious and sweating a bit more than Poch on this one, Joe. It seems that way to me, right? It, I just cannot see this going favorably for Barcelona unless 
They really are are brutally efficient with how they deal with transition moments offensively and defensively. And unless they're just really, really dominant on the ball, which is possible. And so I could be totally wrong on this. But yeah, man, it seems like Kuman has has a big hill to climb in this one. I'll give I'll give Barcelona fans some mild reasons for optimism. I'll start with uh, PSG situation in goal. Keylor Navas has been recovering from an abductor injury. Adductor, abductor, I never quite know the difference or if there are different things. Uh, but either way, uncertain if he will be starting in this game or he'll be able to play. Same same goes for Marco Verratti, who got the injury, uh, got a high boot against Dimit- uh, from Dimitri Payet in that game against Marseille. The expectation is that Verratti will be able to play. I don't really know as much with Keylor Navas, and though Sergio Rico has done fine, he is not Keylor Navas. So I think Barcelona, if it is Sergio Rico, can feel a little bit more comfortable uh, getting some shots and maybe trying to take some shots and making him uncomfortable and seeing what happens there. I also think with any other club, if it was a new manager coming in, it's a Champions League knockout round game, we would assume that that means things are not going well. I mean, look at Aiden uh, Terzic at Dortmund. Like, they're in the knockout round, but there's no expectation that he is, needs to get a, like, a way through, that he should find a way through, and that his job could be on the line if, if he doesn't, because we know he's not going to get the permanent gig. PSG are so strange that like if Pochettino does get knocked out in the first round... I think that is a problem. I don't think he gets sacked, but I think it, it's it's less of like, oh, he's playing with house money. There's no pressure. He's only been there for eight games. How could they possibly expect anything out of him? They brought him in to win things, especially the Champions League. And I think that there will be more pressure on him than there would be for any other manager, for any other team in this situation. So I think he will be very focused on trying to win this. And there is always that risk of then overmanaging or overthinking it or trying something a bit much. And if it is playing a 4-3-3, that's not necessarily what they've been doing. So maybe it is putting people in an unfamiliar situation. Maybe that's grasping at straws, Ryan. I know I do that from time to time. But I think <laughs> there are I mean, it, there are some moments of uncertainty with this PSG. There are some reasons for doubt. My other little interesting thing I would say is that for PSG, I think they're probably really happy that this game is happening behind closed doors. Because right. for the, the slip-ups you've mentioned and how PSG occasionally shoot themselves in the foot when it comes to the Champions League, not having the fans there seems to be beneficial for them. It's why they were able... I would argue it's a big reason why they were able to make the run they were last season. And I think to be playing at the Camp Nou but not have, you know, like thousands and thousands and thousands of fans cheering on the team and picking Barcelona up and and really backing them in this sort of situation, and I think they would because it's PSG and because it's Neymar, I think there's less pressure on PSG than there would be uh, otherwise. Now, just a clar- point of clarification there, Tate. An adductor is a muscle group around your hip. An abductor is a Bavarian team that takes players from a <laughs> team from Dortmund. Just to uh, just to be clear on that one. And uh, you make a point about the Parisian fans. I've always I've never been to the Parc de France for a game, but um, I have I've I've run I've run thirteen marathons. Two of them I've run in Paris, and you know you get some really good atmospheres at some, some marathons around the world. But in Paris, it's like not many people watch, and they sort of look at you going. Why are you running? Why aren't you in a car? It's like a kind of, mm-hmm. you know, a, sta- a standoffish thing. Maybe I'm being a bit stereotypical there, but I wonder if were there's they, a unique Were they wearing berets and swilling, swilling red wine while saying that, Ex- right? Exactly, yeah, they were. Cool. <laughs> they, those cigarettes on those long stems, they were sort of, sort of tapping them in disgust <laughs> as I ran past. Um, so, yeah, yeah it, it, the point I was making there is, I wonder if they have a different relationship with their fans than maybe some other European Titans do. To cut in there, Taylor, yeah, I, think, I, I think, Ryan, that was just yeah. a great subtle flex with your 13 marathons uh, little slip that, that you made in there. I heard that, too. That's well played, yeah, one, sir. Just a couple of which were in Paris, oh, by yeah, the way. Just know, a few. Casual. Just a few. 
My biggie. Yeah. <laughs> I ran a 5K in Richmond once. Whoa. Uh, uh, yeah, no big deal. Uh, Ryan, like this connects again to the conversation from the Weekend Review about Marseille. And the Marseille fan unrest was centered on their the club, uh, like the managing director right now. One of the main criticisms of him is that he is from Paris. And as I said on the show, when I first heard that, I thought like, oh, so they think he's a PSG fan. And that's not what it is. It's the idea that he's not from Marseille, so he doesn't have the local interest in mind, but also that Paris isn't a sporting town and so for a person to come from paris to manage or to run a club it means they're business focused they're not focused on sport so i think you're right it's it it is a strange relationship it is maybe possibly why neymar i believe the rumors were had like stipulations in his contract that he has to go applaud the fans like i think there is less pressure and simultaneously more pressure because that means that the fans who do care care a lot. (laughs) So I I think it is a strange relationship for sure because Paris is just sort of a strange soccer city. Is it true that he has to clap the fans in his contract? That was that was one of the because there was like the there was a story doing the rounds a while back because I think like PSG when the lockdown first happened went and applauded the where the supporter section would be but nobody was there and at the time it was perceived as this like ha a good natured joke they went to applaud the fans for not being there or sort of like to tell the fans we know you're there then there was some reporting that it's because certain players had stipulations in their contract to the extent that I think he gets. If I remember correctly, and again, I'm just going to throw in allegedly again, because this is from memory, and that might not be accurate, but I remember it being something like 300,000 euros, or something insane was his bonus for applauding the fans. I mean, that's not bad for doing some clapping. I'll take that any day of the year. Uh, I've got uh, just a couple more questions for you, gents. Uh, Generally speaking about these two games, which are happening simultaneously next Tuesday at 3 Eastern for Lord knows why. Thank you, UEFA. If you had to pick one to watch live and you're only going to concentrate on one of those games, which would it be, Joseph? Oh, man, I'm going I'm going Leipzig just because, Ryan, of how you nailed that pronunciation and had so much fun with it at the beginning of the show. <laughs> That's my... No, but seriously, this is such a hard choice. They're both going to be awesome games, I think, and I'm now emotionally invested in each of them, as Taylor kind of communicated earlier for himself. I feel the same way. But yeah, I think I'm going to watch Leipzig not just because I think we'll see Adams and I don't think we'll see Dest, but just because I'm really tactically fascinated to see how that game's going to play out. I I don't... Uh, this is not a cop-out answer, but I will say, first of all, I don't think listeners can go wrong. I think both of these games are going to be very, very interesting. Famous last words, watch it be 4-0 at halftime. And if it is, change the channel. And I think that's <laughs> probably what I'll do. Like, I'll DVR both, and I will try to focus on one. I think I will follow in Joe's footsteps and focus on Leipzig-Liverpool because Tyler Adams, but also because I think there are more interesting question marks that are like more relevant to me. Yeah. Uh, but I also think that PS, uh, Barcelona PSG it, like has the the star the star like caliber performances. It's got the the managers who are in difficult situations. We could see Lionel Messi rise to the occasion. We could see him getting really frustrated again. There are lots of subplots for both of these games. So I think I'll end up probably just jumping back and forth. If nothing else, I will end up watching both of them in their entirety. But in terms of which one I watch first, I lean towards Leipzig-Liverpool right now. I think I lean the same way, and I'll do the same thing. I'll watch the first half of that and make a judgment on scorelines at half time. But there, there are some more interesting storylines there. There's some more tactical, um, in, interesting uh, factors going on in that game. I agree with you there, Joe, as well. And more, more. Uh, it's, it's difficult saying this against P- Barca-PSG, but I think there's more potential for chaos, maybe, in the Liverpool game, just because we don't know what <laughs> Liverpool are going to do. So I'm interested in seeing that. My last question for you both, gentlemen. Any of these four teams got a chance of winning this competition? 
Jack? I don't think Liverpool have a chance at this point. I don't think that's a hot take. I think Leipzig do have a chance. I don't think it's a big chance, but I think there's a chance. I would say Barcelona probably don't, although when you have the best player that's ever walked the face of the earth on your team, then maybe that's a different question. And then PSG, I think, have a chance as well, although I'll get a chance to see them closer when we watch them on Tuesday or when, when I watch it after it's already happened or whatever is happening. Maybe I'm watching two screens at once. Who knows? But I think PSG, with the attacking firepower they have, I think Pochettino's a good manager, and I think they have talent in midfield and defense as well. I think they've got a shot to win this thing. But it's just so hard to say. This is a very, very strong field of teams remaining. But I, I guess Liverpool and Barcelona would be the two teams that I'm most confident will not win this whole thing. But, of course, that means at least one of them is going to be in the final. <laughs> I think I would agree with most of what Joe said. I think Leipzig are, are a very good team. I think a lot of times with the Champions League, you have to have those kind of star caliber performances. You need Lionel Messi scoring in the final moment. You need Neymar creating something out of nothing or Mbappe making that run in behind. I, I don't know if Leipzig have that player. Again, not trying to be dismissive because they have so many very good players and they're a very good team. But I don't know if they have those components that take you through, especially if you do make it deeper into the competition where you are playing those even bigger squads. Liverpool's an interesting one to me because I, I think there's an argument to be made that if they get out of this one, it means they have figured some things out and they have gotten some players back in form. And if we do see, say, Ozan Kabak come in and maybe it's, I, I don't know, an another makeshift defender who comes in, uh, be it Ben Davies, Nat Phillips, if it is Henderson and Fabinho, if they're able to figure it out and get through this, I think there's a chance they go on a deeper run for sure. Right now, I would say neither of those two teams would be my favorite. And then you're looking at PSG Barcelona. I agree with everything Joe said about Barcelona. I think of the four teams we've discussed, if I were going to pick one, it might be PSG just because they have the talent, they have the depth, they have a manager who is, I'm going to say, very motivated to make sure he doesn't get eliminated early. So I would err on the side of PSG if I'm picking one. All right, so we're all saying Bayern Munich are winning this thing. Just going to note that yep. down. Excellent stuff. Uh, thank you very much, gents. That was a wonderful uh, uh, preview. I cannot believe I just talked myself into picking PSG. You never bet on PSG. <laughs> what am I doing? They're like, it's just, they, they, they implode so readily on so many different occasions. Chaos. Oh boy. Chaos all yeah. around. Oh we boy. love it. Um, yeah. Oh boy. Uh, uh, we're going to be back tomorrow. We're going to be reviewing the Wednesday games for next week. That's Sevilla, Dortmund and Porto Juventus. Taylor, any more for any more before we head off into the sunset? Other than to say, uh, we Ryan and I will be doing another stereo broadcast, 6 p.m. on Thursday on the Stereo app. If you want to figure out how to listen to that one, download the Stereo app, uh, search for a username. You can search Ryan Bailey. I believe that's Ryan's username. Mine would be Rockwell TSS because I thought there would be more Taylor Rockwells on there, I guess. Uh, but either way, that's going to be 6 p.m. Thursday. Uh, my Soccer 101 episode this week was about the top-scoring Americans in Europe, so we'll talk a little bit about that. We'll answer some questions, and then we also want to hear your suggestions for Soccer 101 episodes. Ryan and I will sort of discuss them on air, figure out if we want to do them, what could be good about that. Maybe we riff on some ideas and see where we end up. But it's going to be a good time. It always is 6 p.m. on Thursday on the Stereo app. And if you haven't checked out these Stereo shows, guys, they are a lot of fun. Uh, they are live shows. We take questions um, live and we, we, we sort of, we're on the hoof a little bit. It's a lot of fun. And we do have some good substantive uh, yeah. <laughs> content as well, of course. But it's a really fun app as well. Uh, sort of the avatars, when, when one of us is speaking, our avatars, mouth moves. And we'll find out if they have made a Canadian one where the mouse separates from the jaw um, when, we, when we log in on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, anything else from you, uh, young man? No, that's all from me, uh, Ryan, the marathon runner, Bailey. I'm good. <laughs> I feel really bad about that flex now. I wish I no, it was good. Know. It was good. You earned it. 
You don't feel bad about that at all. You're right. I feel wonderful. That's it. <laughs> Thank you very much, guys. Have a good one. We'll catch you next time.